on our book table back there. First of all, uh, my secretary couldn't be here. She has a husband who couldn't get off now and a 19-year-old son. She felt she should be with him. I called Virginia, find out if she could come and take care of the table. Her mother is not at all well, so she didn't dare leave her and she didn't dare take her along. I called Mildred Benton, our last secretary. She's just moving from Pennsylvania, has just moved to, to uh, New Mexico. So we have a former employee, though, Ruth Wallstrom. Spoofy, we called her affectionately. And uh, she worked for us for many years. Ruthie, stand up and we'll let the folks turn around and see you. That's Spoofy. So you'll know who she is. All right. Don't clap. Bye. <laughs> And we have, a, we have another former secretary there here, and that's uh, Marie Reynolds. She was my secretary up in Milwaukee, so we have a lot of secretaries, two of them here. Now, about the book table, uh, since I'm speaking on the book of Acts, you may just want to get a set on Acts. I know that's a little more expensive, and that's why they naturally go a little slower, but it's very reasonable for the amount you get. It's four volumes for only twelve dollars. They're three fifty each, and twelve for the set. We have some sets made up there. Should you want a set, you want individual copies, you can get them too. Then second, we have a sort of a special back there. The author's choice: fourteen messages on eight tapes in a very sturdy box. It was $20. You can get them for only $15. That's less than, that's just over a dollar a tape, and you get the case too. A dollar a message, and you get the tape, uh, you get the case too. Now, isn't it strange? You, I know others just can't appreciate what it takes for somebody like me anyway. I'm very laborious at writing to finish, for example, that set on Acts. It took a great deal of research and hours and hours of writing and rewriting and studying and praying. And I wanted, by the grace of God, to make it as comprehensive as I could, and that's why it got to be four volumes. And do you know, already, I wish I had added a couple of things that I didn't think of at the time maybe two appendixes sometimes later. One would be on the interruptions of the book of Acts. Oh, there are so many, many, one interruption after another in the book of Acts. And the second would be on the types of the book of Acts. For remember, it is the last book of types in the Bible, the book of Acts. Sometime I'd like to write an appendix on that. But now we're going to deal with just a few. I would much rather, and I think you would rather, if in a relaxed way we go rather thoroughly into some of these interruptions rather than give you a whole long list of them and talk fast to get everything in. So now will you turn with me please to the uh, seventh chapter of the book of Acts for our first interruption or interruption the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. Or let's go back to the sixth chapter and get some of the background here. This is, of course, about 
Stephen. And uh, I read here in the uh, eighth verse, chapter six, verse eight, and we'll read a few verses here. And Stephen, full of faith and power, beloved, those two go together, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines. Now you may say, that's a strange, Libertines among the Jews? Well, this word means those that have been set free, evidently freed slaves. And uh, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and them of Cilicia. Does that ring a bell? Tarsus was in Cilicia. Saul was in Tarsus. And now I do not doubt that he was one of these, knowing how scrupulously he kept the law. I feel sure that he must have been here at feast time. Them of Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom of and the spirit, that is the conviction, with which he spake. So they finally agreed and said, Stephen, we have to admit it, you're right. You read that in the next verse? No, you don't. No, they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men. They... They uh, hired, they bribed men which said, We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Beloved, I must stop here, and I try to do that when I preach. When there's a moral lesson, let's stop and think. How easy it is to take that one wrong first Step and then to go on in it and to be hardened. It is so natural to let the human will, the human ego, take over. This is what I believe, this is what I've told others, this is what I've taught, and this is what I'm going to stand by. Oh, may God help us, dearly beloved, to keep open hearts and open minds where the truth is concerned. He had overwhelmed them with arguments, but they weren't listening. He had overwhelmed them with proofs that Jesus was the Christ, but their will entered in. They didn't want to believe. They had been defeated in arguments, so now their pride was hurt. And they actually bribed men to give false witness against Stephen. Would you turn back, please, to Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, where there is an astonishing statement. If ever there was a court of jurists, much less a supreme court, that had high, high ethical standards, it was the Sanhedrin of Israel, the supreme court of the Jewish nation. But our Lord had affected or had hurt, had opposed the will of these men, the Pharisees and Sadducees 
and the chief priests. And look what it says. This is almost unbelievable. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council, that's the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. Think of it. How terrible. The judges, the judges of the Supreme Court together seeking false witnesses against Christ. What kind of a trial could he possibly have? I'll never forget reading those two volumes, each one about that thick, by Howard M. Chandler. I believe I got the middle initial right. used to be a congressman many, many years ago, and he wrote about the trial of Jesus, really six trials when you look into the scriptures, one after another, Roman, Hebrew, Roman, so on. And uh, he goes at length into what this jury did in order to convict Christ. He didn't have a chance at a fair trial, and the truth didn't have a chance at a fair trial. And so it was here. Just look how much this is like what they did to Christ. You'll remember much of it from the uh, records in the Gospels about Christ, and this is so like it. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spake. Then they bribed men which said we heard him how men can speak as though they're speaking with conviction when they tell big lies we heard him say we heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against Christ and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses how much like the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. They set up false witnesses which said, this man doesn't stop speaking blasphemies or blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, you can say half-truths, you know, and the things that are obviously true will register with the person you're telling the other half to. You see what I mean? A half-truth is always worse than a big whole-cloth lie. Tell half-truths, and what is true will register with the one you're talking to and say, yes, yes, and you got them saying yes, yes about the rest, too, you see. Now, here's what actually was true. Uh, he had not spoken blasphemous words against Moses and against Christ. We'll see that in a minute. He had not blasphemed that holy place nor spoken against the law. He had done nothing of the kind. And neither had the Lord Jesus. He, they said that he said that Jesus said that he would destroy this temple in, and build it again in three days. He said nothing of the kind. He didn't say, I'll destroy this temple. He said, if you destroy this temple. says he was speaking of the temple of his body, but even if they didn't recognize that. He had not said he would destroy the temple. He said, if you destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it. Now, that's very different, isn't it? A great difference there. Well, anyway, look, please, at the 15th verse and uh, see how hardened 
the human, even the religious heart can become. And all that sat in the council, now they notice something. And they don't merely look at him. They gaze at him, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. We may not forget that, as we remember that first they could not gainsay the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake, his natural but God-given power and conviction. But now there was a man whose face was miraculously illuminated with the light of heaven, and he stood before them as an angel of God. His face shone as it had been the face of an angel. They couldn't help but notice it. Notice it. They gazed at him. And this was the man whose testimony they refused. Think of it. How terrible is the human heart and how depraved. Now then, I wonder if any, if it would be possible to write a, a comprehensive, a condensed history of Israel, such as we have here from the lips and the heart of Stephen. It is amazing in what it, all that it includes. It is amazing in its comprehensiveness. And do you know how long I, it takes, how long he spoke? He may have spoken very deliberately, but it didn't take more than eight or nine minutes. I timed myself as I read it, <laughs> and I read it deliberately. It didn't take more than eight or nine minutes, let's say ten at the outmost. Ten minutes. In ten minutes he gave them a very comprehensive history of Israel, and in it basically this is what he says. That the rejection of Christ did not prove that he was not God or that he was not Messiah. In the ninth verse, he says, The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And later on, you remember verse 13, And at the second time, Joseph was made known unto his brethren, and Joseph's kindred uh, was made known unto Pharaoh. So he says, it's not strange. Joseph wasn't accepted the first time. Then he goes on later to Moses. Look, please, at the 25th verse. Moses supposed that his brethren would have understood when he smote that Egyptian, remember? He supposed that his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not, and they rejected him. So it's not strange that Christ was rejected first. Moses was rejected first, but later, look please at verse uh, 39. Uh, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back unto Egypt. But later they accepted him. Now, uh, doesn't this show, beloved, I think he shows them that it was not strange that there were types of this in the uh, typical scriptures of the Old Testament that Christ would not necessarily be accepted immediately, 
It's not strange that he was uh, rejected the first time, but still he was the Christ. Let's look, please, at verse 47. Uh, by the way, don't these two passages that we've looked at also make it clear that he didn't despise Moses, much less speak blasphemous words against Moses or against the law? Not at all. Look now, please, at verse 47. But Solomon built God an house. How be it? Now, this is what he did believe about the temple. And he tries to show them what I do believe about the temple and hopes that they'll believe what he says. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, uh, saith the Lord? That's Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Hath not my hand made all these things? But then something happened. They had to agree. Remember how Solomon himself in his prayer had prayed, O Lord, the heavens, yea, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. They should have known that. Ah, but now something happens. Very obviously, I can see no other explanation for the sudden change in his tone. He had been conciliatory. He had talked about our fathers. He had called them brethren. He was most conciliatory, trying to win them. But evidently, all of a sudden, he sees he has little time. There's a commotion among the people. There's restlessness and movement, very evidently, because, look, all of a sudden, he changes. And he says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the fathers, or the prophets, have not your fathers? First it was our fathers. Now he says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Beloved, in a way, here you have the last Old Testament prophet. Now, don't get excited. We have a little, it's not back there, I'm sorry, but we have it. A little book entitled How and When. Remember, no uh, revelation had yet been made that they were not under the law. Sure, Christ had died. The veil of the temple had been rent in twain. And bless his dear heart, Dr. Schofield, whom we certainly thank God for, even has in his uh, notes on, the, on that part here, that now the way into the holiest was open. Oh, now wait a minute. That holiest on earth, what was there in there? The glory had departed. Long ago, Ichabod had been written over the temple, and now the glorious presence of God was no longer there. And as that veil was rent from the top to the bottom, they didn't see a glorious free entrance into the presence of God. They saw an empty holiest. It had nothing in it. It had this, this furniture there, but God wasn't there. The presence of God was not to be found. It's not until Paul was raised up 
that you have another, you, you, you see this as a type, another great truth. Now he talks about the veil into the holiest. His flesh, which was rent, was rent from top to bottom. That is, God did it. Not only man, man and the devil all had a part in it, but God says, God hath made him to be sin for us, and the way into the holiest is open. You don't learn that until you come to the Apostle Paul. But here this terrible indictment on the children of Israel and upon their, especially upon their leaders. Oh, what a terrible indictment. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. How terrible. Now, I may, it may be, I meant to say, that we have here some this morning who have worried or been a little concerned at the very least about the unpardonable sin. Anybody like that here? No, we're talking about that unpardonable sin right here as Israel resisted the Holy Spirit. Look please at Matthew and the 12th chapter. Matthew chapter 12. And uh, the 31st verse, Matthew 12, 31. Wherefore I say unto you, now this is the Lord Jesus speaking, and may I ask you, Ruthie, uh, Ruth Wallstrom, if you will bring me the first volume on the book of Acts a minute. I want to read something from there. Now listen. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, thank you, neither in this world or this age, nor in the age to come. Now let me ask you a simple question about that. Why should it be more serious to sin against the Holy Spirit than to sin against the Holy Son? Was the Holy Spirit more important than the Holy Son or the Holy Father? Not at all. The Trinity, I'm sure we all believe and agree, is co-equal. There is no difference in rank between them. They are equal. The Son is equal with the Father and the Father with the Holy Spirit. Why then did he say you can sin against me, but if you sin against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven you? Well, we've just read here. Uh, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Now he goes even back farther. And you rejected Christ, you became the betrayers and murderers of Christ, and now you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, beloved, the sin against the Holy Spirit referred to here is a very particular thing. It was committed by Israel, and that generation that rejected or resisted the Holy Spirit was not forgiven. They were put away. 
and they will not be forgiven even in the age to come when the kingdom is set up. Now then, in Acts, the first volume, our book on Acts, the first volume, I want to read just a brief passage here from pages 238 and 239. Here's the key to the whole thing. As the number seven in Scripture speaks of perfection, the number three speaks of completeness. God himself is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The number three, two, is stamped on creation. We ourselves have the number three stamped on us, body, soul, and spirit. The structural universe bears the same number, being made up of time, space, and matter. That's everything. That's this universe. And each of these is threefold. Time is past, present, and future. Space, length, breadth, and height, or depth, the vertical dimension. Matter is energy, motion, and phenomena. And the scriptures in dealing with the universe designate things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. In homiletics, now if you're not a minister, maybe you don't know what homiletics is. Well, that's the points that a ministry uses, basically. In homiletics, the three-point sermon has always been the standard. You may go to four, or you may be like Anthony Zioli and say, and now 56thly, or whatever, but uh, three is the standard. In business, we have three days of grace. In an auction sale, going, going, gone. First, second, third and last call. Even in sports, the number three is very predominant. What boy doesn't know that in baseball, three strikes is an out, and three outs is an inning. And uh, why always three cheers, not four, you see? Three is a very predominant number in our lives. And the simplest race begins with ready, get set, go. One, two, three. Now the number three is prominent even in parental discipline, and here I can speak from experience. Daddy used to say to me, now I've spoken to you twice. If I have to speak again, I knew what that meant. That meant I felt his hand heavy upon me. Now, so it was with the nation Israel, beloved. It was not because the Holy Spirit was the most important person of the Trinity. It's because the nation had rejected the Father. And then the Father sent the Son, and the Son says, You can reject me. (coughs) You can resist me. You can speak against me, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven, not in this age nor in the age to come. (coughs) And here, beloved, is where that happened. Here Stephen pronounces upon them that terrible indictment. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Here is the end, if you please, of the law dispensation. The law was given to you by the disposition of angels, and ye have not kept it. Well, they couldn't take any more of this. 
the uh, 54th verse says, When they heard these things, now here comes another interruption. There was an interruption already. He suddenly has to change his tone and change his approach. He has to get this in and get it in quickly. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly to heaven. They had looked steadfastly on him. Now he looks up steadfastly to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now, there's been a great deal of misinterpretation about Jesus standing at the right hand of God at this time. We know that we read even in the gospel records, we read in the end of Mark, that after his resurrection he ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of God. But now Stephen sees him and he's standing. Why is he standing? <coughs> I've heard it said that he stood to welcome his martyr home. Well, that's a sort of a sentimental interpretation of it, isn't it? There's no scripture that bears that out at all. But there is scripture on why he's standing. Now tell me this. Why would you say that Christ is now seated at the right hand of God? I think if I asked you individually, the great majority of you would answer, and correctly, that he's seated at the right hand of God because the work of redemption is finished. And he says, since God is resting, since Christ is resting, he that has entered into his rest has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. And he begs us to enter into the heavenlies in Hebrews and to enter into Christ's rest. But in order to understand the historical scriptures best, beloved, we must put ourselves back there. I've had to remind myself of that so often. And I hope you'll keep reminding yourself because it's easy to go from the Ephesian standpoint back to Acts, you see. And we mustn't do that. We must go back where they were. Now, they would know if they knew the believers and those who weren't heard it from the believers that Christ had gone to heaven to sit at God's right hand. Why would they say he was seated at God's right hand? Why would believers at that time say that he was seated at God's right hand? Well, Psalm 110, the first verse, makes that very clear. <clears throat> the Father said to the Son, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. They didn't want you down there. They crucified you. They said, away with you, but I want you to come and sit with me until I make your enemies your footstool. That's how they would interpret, naturally, the session of Christ at the Father's right hand. How would they interpret his rising? Well, 
Psalm 110 again. Sit thou until, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Look please at oh, Psalm 6. There are many, many uh, of these. But look at Psalm 6 please. Or Psalm 7. And the, uh, the sixth verse. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of thine en or mine enemies and awake for me to judgment for thou hast commanded. This is a, an appeal to the Father. The Father rises too. But the Son rises and there are many of the Psalms that say rise, O Lord, and strike your enemies. Rise, O Lord, and smite your enemies. It spoke of the fact that what Peter had predicted at Pentecost, this is it, the last days are here, that now was the time when the judgment was imminent, was ready to fall. I see him, I see him standing at the right hand of God. Well, look please at verses uh, 57 uh, to 60 now of Acts chapter 7. Begin in 57. And they cried out with a loud voice. They yelled. They screamed. They couldn't listen to this. They couldn't abide it. And stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Oh, for us that has touching implications, doesn't it? God is getting ready to convict that heart. God is getting ready to do something with that enemy of Christ. They laid down their feet at a young man's feet, or laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice Lord lay not this sin to their charge in my own mind I can't believe that prayer was answered the Lord said thou hearest me always but we can't say that can we but it does show his attitude even in that situation he died praying for his murderers. But look at the next little sentence. And when he said this, he died in terrible agony as the stones hit his head and no. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Isn't that beautiful? They're all rage and excitement and anger and throwing stones at him and their hands in their fingers in their ears and gnashing with their teeth and they hate him and Saul was consenting unto his death. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And he fell asleep. How beautiful. How beautiful. He fell asleep. What could they do to him? You've heard of the prisoner of one of the, one of the great wicked Roman emperors. And the emperor didn't want to kill him. He was a noted man. So he sent a soldier and said, you tell him. If he doesn't recant, we're going to do this and that and that and that to him. We'll make him suffer. 
And the soldier came back and he said, Oh, praise the Lord, I'll be able to have the fellowship of some of his sufferings. I've never suffered much for him. And he said, You tell him if he... And then it was worse, you know. And the soldier came back again and said, well, this, this man is happy. You tell him these things and it makes him happier than he was before. <laughs> well, we'll fix him. You go back and tell him we're going to make him pay the full price. We're going to kill him. We're going to put him to death. See what he says to that. And the soldier went and he came back. He said, oh, this man now really was, he was just praising his God and saying, oh, I'll see him soon. I'll see him soon. <laughs> the emperor said, what can you do with a man like that? You know, that's true with us. Oh, if we only knew, beloved, nobody can do anything to us if we live close to him. If we live with, as this man did, both the conviction and the wisdom with which he spake, he knew the word, he knew the truth, and he had convictions about it. What could you do with a man like that? I received a letter. I'm going to read you part of it tomorrow or the next day. I received a letter from somebody, well, in the other network, I'll say, said, he's always been friendly to me. Brother Stam, we might as well face it. We're seeing the beginning of the end of the grace movement. The young people are not interested anymore in the grace message. And I think of the scads of young people we're having here, you know. Young people aren't interested anymore in the grace movement. They don't want to go to grace churches. And I said to somebody, I, for once I was just relieved to put a man over my knee and give him a good spanking. I wrote him and I said, we've been warning you and warning you and warning you. If you don't purge out that old leaven, it's going to leaven the whole lump and now it's done it. And you say that it looks like the grace movement is at an end. You've neutralized the grace message on every hand instead of being willing to die for it as you should. Ah, beloved, I hope none of us... I, I said to him, it must have made you shudder as you wrote that, but I don't think it did. I don't think he thought much of it. It's just, well, we're going out of this phase, we're going into another. It would make me shudder if I thought we were near the end of the grace movement. Oh, beloved, listen, if only five of us here are living close to the Lord and truly studying his word because we love it and want to obey it and want to preach it, what can they do to us? Let's stand and preach and fight. Yes, fight, I don't mean be, be cantankerous, but fight the good fight of faith as we have never done it before. And God is going to bless us. He's going. He's already blessing us. I wrote him, don't you ever read the brilliant searchlight and read those excerpts? A lot of those are from young people. People all excited about the message. Only a little while ago, we wrote an article about the, the what was the title of that thing again? The amazing, the amazing um, ingenuity of people who love the Lord and want to do things for him. It's just amazing what people are doing in this, a grace movement. Thank God for it. And I hope we not only stay that way, we have to keep checking ourselves that by the grace of God we become more that way. But there you have one of the great interruptions of the book of Acts. But I'm not through with it yet. There's more. This in itself is a, the, the stoning of Stephen was an interruption. As uh, Dr., as Sir Robert Anderson said in his view, this was the secret crisis in the book of Acts. And I agree with him. This was the secret crisis. There God says, now I'm through. Now I'm through. He was going to phase it out, his dealings with Israel. But there, that was the time, as he writes in his first letter, Paul does, he says, the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. 
and God was through with Israel. And when he sent Paul to, to go first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles, it was only so that from Jerusalem to Rome they might be without excuse, and that any who might be rescued among them might be rescued. Now then, let's look at Luke 19, for this is so important here. The Lord Jesus sort of predicted this, in the 19th chapter of Luke, please, beginning at verse 12. I shall never forget when I first heard Dr. Pettengill speak on the added parable. I thought, what in the world will he, is he going to speak about, the added parable? Well, verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because they were near to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, just stay there a moment, but that's as much as I'll read now. The point is, that he was not then going to set up the kingdom. He had to go into a far country. The king had to go to heaven and receive for himself. The father was to recognize his, his work on Calvary and was to bestow on him a kingdom. And then he would return as king. And you remember he uh, gave them talents and so on to take care of. But look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Beloved, I truly believe that what Dr. Pettengill said years ago was true. This messenger is Stephen. They sent a man after Christ and said, We won't have him to reign over us. They rejected Christ not only in incarnation, they rejected him in his resurrection and ascended glory as well. Well, turn now, if you will, please, to the 13th chapter, also of Luke. Luke, the 13th chapter, and uh, the ninth verse. 13th chapter and the ninth verse. I beg your pardon. Yes, Luke 13, verse 9. Uh, here's this tree. We'll begin with verse 7. The tree, the fig tree, didn't bring forth fruit. So the owner said, cut it down. Why should it cumber the ground and take sap away from other things? Then said he to the dresser, these three years I come seeking fruit and find none, cut it down. And he, the dresser, answering, said unto him, Lord, leave it alone this year also. How long did God leave Israel alone before he cut it down? When they rejected Christ, it would not have been strange if he had sent the judgment upon them right then. But he left them alone just about a year. When the apostles worked with them and the Holy Spirit worked with them, let it alone this year also, and I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, after that, thou shalt cut it down. This agrees with chapter 19 and uh, verse 27. 
Remember, his enemies, his uh, citizens sent a messenger, a message after him. We don't want him to reign over us. Well, uh, when he returned, the 27th verse says, Those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. There you have the unpardonable sin. I want to close with just a get away from this interruption a moment. We'll go further into it tomorrow because there's more interruption here. But in an audience of this size, there must be unsaved people. There must be some who have been brought by others or have just come and you don't know the Lord as your Savior. My dear friend, your sins are not unpardonable. Maybe that's what's bothering I used to think so. Before I was saved, I used to cover my head with my blankets at night and say, Oh God, oh God, you know, I was so under conviction and so worried. Worried that I had gone too far. As a boy of 14 already, I didn't know sin as some people know it. But as a boy of 14, I wondered whether I had gone too far. Beloved, we read in Romans 5.20, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Can you find an unpardonable sin there? Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Can you find an unpardonable sin there? Pastor O'Hare used to say, if you go out of this meeting without Christ, you will go with all your sins unpardoned, but not because one of them was unpardonable. And that's true. Oh, my dear friend, you can be saved this very morning. Right now, you may be saved if with all your heart you will believe the love story from the Word of God, that He loved you, that Christ died for you. If you'll only say in the simplest way, right where you're sitting, I wouldn't ask you to raise a hand or raise a finger, not because I'm against it if it's done in the right way, but I'm always afraid, and maybe I've said this here, I don't know, but if I asked you to do that much, I could, you could never be sure you had done it right. You don't have to do anything. A woman took her husband to an evangelistic meeting one time, held at that time by Youth for Christ on Saturday nights. And an invitation was given, why did you come forward and confess Christ as your Savior? Why did you come forward and show that you want to be saved? And he was scared. He was just glued to his seat. And as they walked home together, she said to him, Dear, why didn't you go up today? You know you've wanted to. He said, somehow I couldn't. I was just glued to my seat. He said, maybe next Saturday. Don't you see, that would be salvation by courage, wouldn't it? You'd need a certain amount of courage to come forward. But salvation is not by courage. It's not by praying. It's not by paying. It's not by doing anything. Salvation is accepting what he has done. That's the message of grace. You know what grace means? I've got to write sometime. Oh, I've so many things I want to write. I have an obsession for that, I guess. But I do want to write on words that are so misunderstood. And grace is one of them. In the word grace is the idea of delight. 
like a grandfather sees his grandson coming, and oh, he just delights in him. He delights to do things for him. He delights to give him things. That's God's attitude toward us. He's not imputing your trespasses to you. He's not holding them. They've been paid for, if only you will accept it. Not only God's will, God's will is sovereign, and that will be done. But nevertheless, you have to will to be saved. Whoso willeth to know the doctrine, he'll know the truth. And God wants you to break down that stubborn will of yours and say, Yes, Lord Jesus, I believe it. I believe that thou didst die for me. And I'm just going to, from now on, forget everything else, all my trying and all the good things that I think I've done. I've come to thee as a poor sinner. What a hymn that Charlotte Elliott wrote. I love it every time I hear it. <clears throat> oh, Lamb of God, how does it come uh, just as I am? Without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. Come this morning. We'd be so happy to know that some here have come to simply trust and so to love the Lord Jesus who has come to mean so much to us. Thank you, Brother Wayne.